You should not spend money you don't have on stuff you don't need to impress people you don't like. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the rock apart. Now we eating from state to state. We scrape the plate. I put my eggs in the basket. Took a leap of faith. I took a chance. Now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests. Now let's bring Matt. Welcome to an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast to kick off your 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. It is your host, Matt Labrie, and what an episode to kick off your year, as today we are joined by Vivian Tu, or maybe you might know her as your rich BFF. She's your favorite Wall Street girly, helping you get rich through practical financial tips, tricks, and straight-up realness. And thanks to Vivian, in this episode, you will learn the absolute worst financial advice that so many people are given and oftentimes fall into, so beware. Number two, how to approach financial conversations with your significant other, the conversation you might be avoiding with that person that's in your life. Number three, the cold hard facts about what can happen if you do not ask for the raise that you deserve. You are going to be blown away by what you are potentially leaving on the table over the course of your lifetime, if you do not do this. Number four, how to transition from your nine to five to entrepreneurship or owning a business or whatever it may be in a smart financial way. Furthermore, you are also going to learn the tactic that Vivian used to manifest her dream life all at once. And we're talking about book launches, podcasts, world tours, the list goes on. She manifested it with one particular thing. And it's something that each and every one of us can do. There is so much more in this episode. And as always, calling on you, planting the seed within your mind, your heart, to share this episode with someone in your life. You're tuned in, you're tapped in, you're listening for a reason. You're kicking off your 2024 with an absolute banger. So help someone in your life do the same by sharing this episode with them. Whether you share this on your Instagram story and tag us, whether you share it directly via text message or however you plan to do so, you are helping someone off kick their year off with an absolute bang. Now let's dive into the first episode of 2024 with Vivian Two. I have to kick it off with, I mean, maybe this is a basic question, but I feel like this can go deep. How are you? Listen, I'm okay. Um, I will say I dodged it for a couple years, but Guess who just tested positive for COVID? And you're still here right now. So you are a trooper. I am, but I will say like this, it's been pretty mild. I honestly thought I just had like a slight cough and like I wasn't doing super great, but um, I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay. I'm glad to hear you're okay. I will say though, I'm so certain I know where I got it too. Um. Denver International Airport, if you're listening, you will rue the day. Um, There is this (laughs) awful woman behind me on this escalator down to like the air trans system, like the little train that goes between terminals. And she was like, hurry up, the doors are open. And so I lifted my suitcase, I lifted it and like my purse, the purse string wasn't like slung onto the handle. And so all my shit goes tumbling down this escalator. And I am a wreck. So I like abandoned my roller suitcase. Somebody could have stolen it. I, you know, thank God nobody did. But like a a kind gentleman put it to safety for me. But I'm there grabbing all my stuff, all my whatever. Mm. Um, And one of the things that didn't fit in my suitcase and I just jammed into my purse at the last minute was my toothbrush. And so it was the only toothbrush I had. But this toothbrush has now fallen on the ground. And this is so gross. I can't believe I'm admitting this within the first like two minutes of being on your show. People are gonna be like, this girl's disgusting. Um, I attempted to disinfect my toothbrush with mouthwash, but I don't know if it worked. And I think I got COVID from the ground of the Denver International Airport. Oh, goodness. We have to we have to have a conversation with the people that are cleaning up. Over there. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. Well, yeah. I, I, I 
do wish you well. And I'm really grateful. I mean, you're, you're showing up here sick and uh, I'm really grateful for that. So I just wanted to say thank you. Like that's of such course. a trooper. Thank you yeah. so much for having me. But if anybody makes fun of how nasally I sound, we're going to, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, for real. I am really grateful for this, but let's go further on that question. I know you're sick. Obviously, you have a lot going on. I mean, I, I love your body of work. I love what you're putting out into the world. That's exactly why we're here. I'm like, listen, we need to make this happen. Like, I, I was so excited for this. How are you in anticipation of book releases and all of that? Like, what's life like right now? Life is a little crazy, if we're being honest. Um, hmm. I feel like I am so grateful and so lucky because everything I have asked the universe for has happened. Mm -hmm. Miss universe certainly did not read the fine print where I said, Hey, like maybe don't have all of these things happen all at once. That'd be like sick. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, you know, uh, lucky folks can't be choosers in that way. Mm -hmm. And I am very fortunate. My digital business is, you know, the stalwart, the, the main rock that is always, been the core of my business. But like you mentioned, my book, Rich AF, it releases December 26th. Um, I don't, I think this show is coming out after that, but if you want to get a copy, just go to richaf.me. You can get a copy. I truly think this book is going to be life-changing for so many people. They're going to be able to read it from page one to the very last page and just feel more confident, more capable, and more ready to take on their financial journey. Everything from asking for more money at work, budgeting, saving, investing, taxes, credit scores, debt. I cover all of it. Mm -hmm. um, next month, January, I have my book tour, which is nuts. I never thought I'd be someone who'd be able to say like, oh, I'm going on tour. Like who, who do I think I am? Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> but it's all really exciting. It's all happening all at once. You know, on top of that, I have Now Worth and Chill, my podcast. I have you know, uh, speaking opportunities. I still have a, a ton of stuff coming in that, you know, is in terms of like brand partnerships or uh, activations that I want to be a part of, or just cool stuff in regards to like pitching TV shows. Like there's so much going on. It just feels like there's not enough hours in the day. Well, I love that. And I'm really curious to learn what your methodology or what you deploy, I don't know, tactically, actionably, to bring those things in like you said you know the universe blessed you with it so it almost sounds spiritual in a sense but i'm curious like is it prayer is it i don't know a manifestation practice what does that look like for you yeah so every single year i know this feels like a little hokey to some people and it was hokey to me when before i did it i put together a vision board and mm. I'm not someone who's like into like glue sticks and crafting and stuff like that. So I actually make mine a digital one. So I just pull up a one sheet on, you know, a PowerPoint on a Google slide and I design it and I put on everything that I wanted for this year. I wanted, you know, I had a certain follower account I wanted to get to. I had uh, targets for what I wanted to accomplish with, you know, the podcast number of listeners. I had targets for the book, what I wanted to do. I'm not going to jinx it, but like being a bestseller, like th there were so many things that I wanted and I put them all on that vision board and it was beautiful and it was lofty. And this is the thing that I think I've done an incredible job at that a lot of people don't do well. Mm. I knew when to hire people who were smarter than me. And I feel really fortunate to be surrounded by a team that is so good at what they do. So I've got my agents at WME. I've got my management team at Range, my attorney who makes sure that nothing bad ever happens to me. I've got my publicist. I've got my business manager. I've got my person who, you know, my newsletter writer. I've got my social media manager. I've got, you know, my assistant. Like all of these people are better than me at w one thing. And I am able to then lean on them for those things that I need. So I take that vision board and then I break out each thing and I say, what are the steps to actually get me there? And then the steps that I can do, I'll put onto my plate, but the steps that I think other people can do better than me, I give to them. And I say, this is what I want. Help me make it happen. 
what do you need from me to do this part of your job? And whatever the, excuse me, whatever answer that might be, we work together as a team to make it happen. And my team loves to joke. They are like, you are of the Tom Holland school of manifestation, getting, you know, bagging Zendaya, but like, it's not just about manifesting what you want. It's not just about dreaming. It's about putting a plan into place and having steps, baby steps that get you from point A to B and B to C and eventually it gets you all the way to Z. I love that. Where do you put that digital vision board? I mean, first of all, I love that you do that. I love vision boards. Like, yeah. I, I get made fun of because it's like... I thought they were fake, Matt. Why? Because I was like, oh, you're cutting up some magazines and gluing them to a piece of paper. Like, what a waste of an afternoon. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm also very practical in that way. Like, I'm not... Mm. I could certainly use a little bit more woo-woo in my life. And I'm just not like that. Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at something every day, I feel like that will help dictate the actions, right? Like that, that to me is what the vision yeah. is, you know? Yeah. So that's why I'm curious, like where you kept your digital one. Like, did you make it like the background of your laptop or something? No. Oh my gosh. The background of my laptop is like whatever background that came downloaded on my laptop when I bought it. Uh, I put it into a shared drive. And this mm -hmm. share drive is accessible by every single person on my team because yeah. I felt like it was so important to have an accountability buddy and not just one, an accountability buddy on every facet of my team mm -hmm. so that like if I wasn't hitting goals, if I wasn't getting what I needed to get done, we could then look back and be like, what went wrong? Mm -hmm. So I wanted not only like – did I make the vision board? I was shouting it from the rooftops. Like, I'm going to do this. And there was going to be a little bit of embarrassment and shame if I didn't. And for me, nothing drives me like the fear of being embarrassed or shame or, you know, wanting to avoid backpedaling. Yeah. When I say I'm going to do something and I've told people I got to get it done. That's so interesting. So, would you suggest someone publicize their goals to, you know, essentially like light that fuel, like, like, light that fire so that they're like, Hey, like, you know, you just made this public, like you got to go and get it done now. 10 out of 10. Um, yeah. I am a huge, huge proponent of this. Um, there have actually been studies that show people who write their goals down physically, like with a pen and paper, as well as people who tell their goals to another person are more likely to actually achieve them. Mm -hmm. And it comes from typically when you're writing, you're basically putting it in stone and you are going to eventually make a plan to do it. And then when you tell someone else, it goes back to that, almost that embarrassment factor, that shame factor of like, you know, I've already made a promise, not just to myself, but like to this person that I'm going to do this and you want to get it done. And I think, that is one of the only instances where I personally use shame because I don't find shame to be a good motivator um, in other facets of my life. But when it comes to goal setting, being accountable and being held accountable is probably the easiest way for me to actually do stuff and stick to it. Yeah, I love this. I'm curious to know what your motivators are. Like, what was it? that first provoked you or led you down the path that you're currently on to start putting out the content, to start writing the books, the podcasts, et cetera? Like, what was that moment? Was it one particular or was there many over time? I would say it was like a buildup of little moments over time. So yeah. I remember wanting to talk about finance in a way that was just like fun, but I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this. This is like weird and cringy and embarrassing uh, because I'm a millennial. And when you do stuff like this, people make fun of you. But I had a girlfriend at my second job. So I started my career as a trader on Wall Street. And when I left and went to um, work at BuzzFeed, all mm. of my new colleagues were like, oh, you came from Wall Street. You're going to help me rebalance my 401k. You're going to tell me which health insurance plan you picked. You're going to tell me, should I be buying our company stock options? And I started answering the same questions over and over again. 
And I was like, oh, you guys are so annoying. I'm going to put this on the internet. And <laughs> it was largely at the encouragement of my best friend at work. She was the very first influencer I'd ever met. She had 10,000 followers on Instagram. She was a foodie blogger. And at first I thought being an influencer was so cool because every so often she would take me out to a restaurant and we wouldn't have to pay. And the expectation was just that she would post about it and, you know, she would get the meal comped. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is so cool. Like, I love this. I can't believe like, this is like, you know, something you do for fun. And like, obviously she wasn't doing it full time. She worked with me at Buzzfeed. Um, but she was like, you know, Viv, like, I really think like there's a audience for this and a market for this. I think you should put your content, like, and I think you should put your advice and your tips and tricks all over the internet. I'm like, all right, whatever. And I put up the very first video and it was just a video that was like, Hey, we're in the middle of the pandemic. I'm seeing some pretty shitty advice going around. Um, 15 year olds in their mom's basements telling people to put mm. their stimulus checks into Bitcoin or Tesla calls and like make some pretty irresponsible financial decisions and don't do that. As someone mm. who's actually worked on wall street, someone who actually understands finance, nobody who has ever worked in this industry and knows what they're talking about would ever tell you to do that. I don't have a get rich quick scheme, but if you want to learn about money, I can teach you. And that was the whole video. And by the end of the week, I had a hundred thousand followers. Holy crap. Yeah. That was crazy. is crazy. The take up was nuts. That is incredible. I, I'm curious because you were talking about bad advice. So like, what are the top three worst pieces of money advice that you've heard? And maybe it's not necessarily as specific as put your stimulus check into Tesla puts or calls or whatever the case may be. But generally speaking, like what's the worst money advice out there? Top three. Okay. First and foremost, I made this mistake because I was given this piece of advice and it is hot trash. Do not close your oldest credit card, even if you're not using it anymore. So mm. a lot of us open up our first credit card and it's like the first one we get out of school or whatever. And it's a little rinky dink card, not too many rewards, not too many, nothing crazy. Um, and then we start to get into our careers and we start to make a little bit more money and that's great. But similar to a lot of people, I was like, oh, I'm going to level up my credit card game. I've got a fancy metal credit card now. It's like, cool. I get lounge <laughs> access. There's so many benefits. I had heard time and time again, it was bad to have too many lines of outstanding credit. So I closed my oldest credit card because it was dinky and I wasn't using it. And it dropped my credit score by 60 points Oh wow! because it chopped my credit history in half. Um, obviously paying your bills in full on time, make up part of your credit score. Right. But another part that sure. people don't talk about is how long you've been doing that for. If you are doing it and paying your bills on time every single month, but you've only been doing that for two years, that's still pretty like suspicious. Whereas mm -hmm. if you've been doing it for 10 years, that's a lot more valuable to a, a lender. And because I closed my oldest credit card, it chopped my credit history in half. And that was a mistake I couldn't undo. And all I could do was wait and keep paying my bills on time and wait out another four years to get my credit score back to where I wanted it to be. And I couldn't buy that time back. So yeah. I think that was horrible advice. Um, second, I would say the another really, really horrible one is like, to focus on scrimping and saving like the, you know, Matt, you can't afford a home because we like avocado toast and you know, we're millennials and we drink too much coffee that at stores that charge $5 a cup, like please get over yourselves. Like that is not why millennials can't afford a home. The cost of a home has three to 10 X depending on where you live over the past 50 years. It is now cheaper to rent than buy a home in 70% of markets. Like, that's why you can't afford a home. Interest rates right now are hovering around 7%. Like, it's expensive. And I think it's crazy to say that you need to cut out every single discretionary expense to try and get yourself to a place of financial freedom because that's not how it's done. Rich people know that. Rich people know that the best way 
to have more money, to be able to save more money and invest more money is to make more money. And Mm -hmm. I know that sounds kind of like, duh, but like, how many people do you know ask for a 10 to 15% raise every year? Not that many. And if you know that making money is important, why aren't you doing that? Because there have been studies shown that unless you're getting a raise or job hopping every two years, by the end of your life, if you are not you know, doing that, if you are not switching jobs every two years or getting that raise or promotion, you make 50% less through the wow. course of your lifetime. Half, half. Can you afford to make half? I can't. I want to make full. So <laughs> I, I just think it's crazy that we focus on the scrimping and saving when we should really be talking about the maximizing, the abundance, the making more, have more coming in. Because it is not surprising at all to hear somebody got a five or $10,000 raise. It's really hard to cut out five to $10,000 worth of expenses out of your life without hating every moment of your waking existence. That sucks. You don't get to have a Netflix subscription. You don't get to go out to drinks with friends. You don't get to get your nails done. You don't get to get a haircut. And those are all the things that really make life worth living. Sure. Um, Yeah. So there's that. That's two. And then last but not least, I think a really horrible myth and thing that I've heard is that you need to pay off every last ounce of debt you have before you start investing because people talk about debt like it is a four-letter word. Okay, technically it is, yes, but I meant that kind of four-letter word, like a bad one, like a, like a swear yeah. word. And it's not. Debt is a tool the same way any other financial instrument is a tool. And that is easily shown through how we talk about debt with rich people and broke people. With rich people, we call it leverage and we put them on the cover of time magazine but when a poor single mom puts groceries she cannot afford on a credit card to feed her kids that night we point our fingers and say how irresponsible what a bad parent Hmm. isn't that a little messed up don't you think yeah it's crazy of course like just that the narrative around debt depending on how much money you already have is so different and i think it's important to acknowledge that You don't need to be debt-free to start investing because Mm -hmm. what you're really looking for is the delta. And that essentially means, are you able to invest and grow your money faster than your debt is growing basically bad interest? And typically, my rule of thumb is the rule of seven. Pay off any debts with an interest rate of 7% or higher first. Mm -hmm. And then start investing while you pay down those lower interest rate debts. Maybe you got a federal student loan with a three, four percent handle on it. You don't need to be in a rush to pay that bad boy down. You should be investing for your future while paying that down. Okay, I love this. You you sparked a ton of questions, and I believe these questions integrate into what you were sharing here in regards to like the worst advice you've heard. Number one is maybe this is a little woo woo, but I'm a really big believer in proximity being powerful. So what I mean by that is putting yourself in an experience that maybe you can't afford daily, but just showing yourself that it's possible by putting yourself in that experience, whether that's like going to a restaurant you wouldn't go to, or maybe even like flying first class or something of that sort. So I'm really curious, like, where's the balance of doing that and not overdoing it. Right. Um, I don't disagree with you that proximity is important mm. because so many of the opportunities that we get in life and especially rich people get in their lives are not due to them being smarter than us, being better than us, being faster, stronger, whatever. It's based on their network. Mm. And that network can only be built in certain arenas. So there's the proximity of working at a certain type of company. There's the proximity of belonging to a certain type of club. There's the proximity of spending time in certain geographies where the real estate is so expensive, you can only find your way there if you are already so well-to-do. And I think 
it is valuable to occasionally put yourself in those spaces to give yourself an opportunity at building a network that you otherwise may not have come across in your regular life. Mm -hmm. That said, I think it needs to be done with intention and purpose. So maybe you want to apply and buy a conference pass to money 2020 where some of, you know, the largest private equity firms, hedge funds, VC funds, whatever, send representatives every single year. That is going to be an opportunity for you to literally use your brain as a sponge and soak up what is happening in this space. You're going to be able to go to sessions, listen to people who are thought leaders speak. You're going to be able to meet other people in the space that could potentially help you out in the future. I think that is a lot more valuable than buying a first class plane ticket because I don't know about you, but when people talk to me on planes, I like really want to hurl myself off of the plane. Um, <laughs> typically, you know, for me, like when I get on a plane, I'm trying to focus, I'm trying to work, I'm trying to do something before I get to my destination. So like that is not necessarily a networking opportunity in the same way that like, I don't recommend joining a gym as a dating pool because mm -hmm. when I'm at the gym, I don't want you to talk to me. I'm trying to work out and I'm trying to leave. Whereas joining a social club may be a better opportunity if you are trying to meet new people and trying to date or trying to, you know, find career networking opportunities. I think if it's done with intention, paying for proximity can be worth the investment, but you just want to be really, really deliberate in what you're choosing to pay for. Otherwise it could be a wasted expense. Yeah. I love that. Now, knowing what you know now, would you rather have a conversation on a plane or use a toothbrush that has fallen on the Matt, airport Matt, this is so rude. I can't believe you would bring this and hold this against me. <laughs> um, obviously, I would rather have a conversation than use a coveted toothbrush that I didn't know about. Oh my God. Like, I'm so embarrassed I did that too because I knew I was like, this is gross, but I did it anyway. Ugh. <laughs> I'm only messing with you. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, okay, so back to money here. I almost feel like I heard you say that you don't necessarily align with living below your means to a, to an extent. Am I mistaken when I when I share that? Um, I, I would say I am a big proponent for living below your means. But I'm curious where you got that line. And yeah. Where, like why? Because there may be something to it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I almost felt that when you were sharing about millennials, like getting the avocado toast and the $5 cup of, uh, of coffee and things of that sort. Cause obviously there are cheaper alternatives to both, right? There's a yeah. cheaper breakfast. There's a cheaper cup of coffee. Right. So I'm just like, just trying to feel around that because it's really hard to live below your means. Right. Especially yeah. when it's so hard and, uh, it's just, a, especially as a millennial, I'm a millennial as well. I'm born in 92. You know, you see things on social media, you have the primal urge to feel like you're a part of something, uh, going to that restaurant or trying that cup of coffee or whatever it may be. So that's why I just, you know, threw that out there. I wanted to make sure I was super yeah. clear on that. I would say I'm a huge proponent of living well below your means. Mm. I recommend, you know, keeping your lifestyle the same even when you start to make a lot more money. That is yeah. something that I have made the mistake of not doing. And I don't want people to fall into that trap um, of that lifestyle creep. You make a little bit more money, you spend a little bit more money, and then suddenly you're no better financially off than when you got your entry level job. That's a pretty shitty feeling. When it comes to the little treat, that, that's like the, the trademarked term, the little treat. I don't have a problem with the little treat. I don't think the little treat is what is going to prevent you from living below your means. You can afford anything. You just can't afford everything. And you certainly can't afford it all at once. Mm -hmm. And so 
what is valuable to me, and I think a lot of people, is understanding where their values lie, where the things that they truly, truly find to be important in their life lie. And an easy way to do this, actually, I love this equation, and a lot of people probably already do this, is to basically use the value-based spending formula. It's the, uh, is it worth it equation? So when you go to a store and you see something has a price, either a good or service, instead of thinking it costs X, Y, Z dollars back into how many hours you would have to work to pay for that thing or that good or service. Mm -hmm. And so if you make $20 an hour, those leggings that are $80, that's no longer $80 leggings. That's four hours of work. Are those leggings still worth it to you? Are you really excited about sitting at your desk for four hours to pay for those leggings? In my case, doing this equation in my head has helped me spend so much less on full price retail. I love a discount. I love a deal. I'm a Marshall's girly. I'm a Maxinista. I do not like to pay full price for clothes. But when I calculate my value, my hours that I have to work in regards to dining out, going on vacation, buying gifts for my family and friends and the people that I love most, I'm a big baller. Like (laughs) I absolutely don't feel anything. I don't feel any type of way about doing that because the value makes sense to me every single time. Not only do I feel like it's worth the amount of work I'd have to put in, I feel it with enthusiasm and that allows me to basically never walk away from anything with buyer's remorse. When I'm buying myself a vacation, when I'm buying myself a nice dinner out, I'm like, oh, so worth it. The last time I paid full price for a pair of boots, I like went home and I was like spiraling mentally. And so just think about what means the most to you. You can have your little treat and still live well below your means and I think an important line we can all remember is that you should not spend money you don't have on stuff you don't need to impress people you don't like. Because I did that all in my early 20s. I wanted to be one of the cool girls so bad. I wanted them to like me. I wanted to have the right, the, the right shoes and the right purse and the right jacket and the right... Uh, blah, blah, blah. I wanted all of it. They still don't like me. They still weren't my friends. And at the end of the day, it didn't bring me any joy. But now my true girlfriends, my girlfriends that I've been friends with for like a decade or more now, being able to go to dinner with them and pick up the tab and have all of them be like, ooh, like our rich BFFs picking up the tab. Like I feel so good because a lot of them are still in graduate school. A lot of them are in debt and they're certainly going to make amazing livings once they're done and they've graduated and all that. But like, if I can ease that burden just a little bit for them and show them a good time and I can pay for it, I feel great. I love that. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. That is really cool. Like you gave me the chills for real. My arm standing up. Like I, I really love that. Um, I want to talk the psychology of money to an extent. Like what, yeah. what's your take on people finding validation on like what's in their bank account and whatnot? Like how do we shift out of that? It's the same thing here as it is with like, if you and I were to meet at a party, the first question out of one of our mouths would be, oh, so what do you do? Mm. It's not like, who are you? Tell me about yourself. It's like, what do you do? It's like our society ascribes so much value to work and what we have in the bank because it's almost a, a social marker of goodness. Like, are you gainfully employed? Do you make a lot of money? Because those things are typically associated with fulfillment. They're associated with success. All the while, you could be making, you know, $400,000 a year and hate your job. And nobody knows that. So I think one thing I have been trying to do a lot, and it is hard, I'll be honest with you. It's not something that we're 
naturally programmed to be good at is like defining yourself through other means. So like right now, instead of trying to ascribe value based on how much money my business is making, I try to ascribe value via milestones Mm -hmm. and be like, you know, I'm so proud. I'm going to be a debut author. Uh, you know, my, my debut book, I'm an author. I hope to be a bestseller. I hope to do all of these things. And none of that has to do with money. I mean, it doesn't. And at the end of the day, I think when you are trying to ascribe value to your life, Think about if you were to close your eyes and you were to fast forward in your life and you are 101 years old and you're on your deathbed, what would you be most proud to tell your grandkid? Little, you know, Matt the third. What would you be really proud to tell them about your life? What would you want them to remember? I guarantee you it's not the amount of money you have in your bank account. Right. Yeah. I agree. By the way, I would love to have a Matt the Third. I'm going to have to put you in touch with my girlfriend because she refuses to have a kid named after me. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know what? When you get to the third and then the kid just starts going by trip, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like uh, a little, a little, a little barf sound. But like, you know, Matt the Third could make it work. I would love that. That would be awesome. <laughs> Um, I still want to stick on this topic because you were talking about how, you know, getting that 10 to 15% raise, like how many people are doing that. Um, And then you also talked about the potential of making 50% less over the course of a lifetime. What can we do to start believing we're worth more? I mean, I think the first thing you want to do is to actually make sure that you're worth more, right? Mm. Are you performing in the top quartile? And that takes a lot of introspection. I know people who are so bold and they ask for a 10 to 15% raise every year. And I'm like, dude, your work product sucks. You're bad at your job. I actually have no idea how you got here. And that's a pretty tough situation because other people are saying that about you, you should have the self-awareness to know that that's the case about yourself. And if you don't, that's bad. But if you are performing at the level that you need to be performing at and you still feel awkward or uncomfortable asking for that raise, I implore you to remember this. Corporations don't give a shit about you, okay? They will lay you off in a second if it is good for their bottom line, if it is going to help the company, they do not care about you. Listen, if you have a good relationship with your boss, your boss cares about you, your coworkers care about you, but they're humans. Your corporation does not care about you because it is not human. So you do not need to feel bad about asking your corporation for more money. Yes, your manager acts as a proxy, but When you ask your manager for more money, it's not like they take that $10,000 out of their paycheck and give it to you, right? Like what happens is you ask your manager for more money. They think you deserve it. They go back to HR. They beg HR for more budget for their pool. HR goes and works with accounting, works with the, you know, uh, uh, the, the revenue team, they work with the, the labor costs and see exactly how much they're able to divvy up team by team. Your manager then gets a pot, a pot of money, and they have to decide how that pot's going to get divvied up between you and the four, five, six, seven, however many people who sit next to you. You will then get an allocated number based on the size of that pot, the number of people on your team, and how compelling of an argument you were able to make. And again, that money comes out of a business banking account that has been deliberately set aside for labor costs. Like, This is not coming out of a human being's paycheck. You are allowed to ask for more money. It does not put your boss in a bad position. It's not the first time somebody's asked them for money and it's certainly not going to be the last. So don't feel shy. You're not hurting anybody. The only thing that can happen is they say no. And then you should be asking for feedback as to why and when it would be appropriate for you to ask again. Yeah. 
I love that. That is such valuable advice because we have so many people here that are like still in corporate looking to make that transition to do their own thing, but they need yeah. corporate to fuel that. Like it's such a reality for millennials and younger generations and even older generations. So I definitely appreciate that. And um, I don't, I don't think I like talk about this too often, but like I was moonlighting. Your Rich BFF was like a moonlight gig for a year and three months. What does and that mean, I was, moonlight? Like my day job was funding my side hustle. Oh yeah. That's yeah. I love that. And I worked my full-time job, you know, I want to say like eight to six. Cause I wasn't working a nine to five. I was working a little bit more than that. Mm. I was working Monday through Friday, Saturday. I would ideate all of my social concepts. Sunday, I would put on a shirt, film the first video, take off the shirt, put on a new shirt, film the second video, take off the shirt, put on a new shirt, film the third video. So it would look like it was a new day every single day that I was releasing a video, but I was batching them. And it was just a side hustle for so long. A year and three months is a long time. That's, you know, that's more, that's, that's more time than it takes to bake a baby. So bake a baby in the oven. So I just think that like, don't be afraid to keep doing your day job because I think when we have some of these great ideas and I'm not saying they're not great ideas, a lot of us have these great ideas and we instantaneously want to put every single ounce of our being in them. That's great from like an emotional perspective, but from a feasibility standpoint, you want to make sure that this is something that you actually love enough to do over time. One, two can make money. Three is something that the world needs and four, something that you're actually good at. So once you figured that out, you actually have the means, but also the medium and also the mastery to get that job done. And at that point you should start seeing revenue coming in from your side hustle. That is saying to you, Hey, if you do want to take a leap of faith, you can afford to, and I would never, ever have quit my day job to do Your Rich BFF full-time. I wouldn't have had that opportunity had I not set aside $100,000 from working my day job so that I had a basically a parachute in case sure. Your Rich BFF didn't work out. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. By the way, I've totally left the job. I was working with one of the sharks from Shark Tank, totally left with no plan no no parachute anything so i highly advise to take your advice and not mine <laughs> that. but I, I do want to touch on that because i think that's brilliant i think the question that comes to mind is how can people prepare for their corporate departure like what does it look like for you it was 100 grand but how does someone evaluate what's right for them i would encourage them and this has a lot to do with like building up an emergency fund If you are about to take a leap of faith, you want your emergency fund beefy. This is not the three months anymore. We're talking, you're trying to get close to nine to 12 months. That essentially buys you time. That emergency fund is what buys you the ability to do something else. And once you have that in place for your lifestyle, that is what's going to let you have that freedom. Um, Basically what you do is you calculate your expenses each month. And then you want to buy yourself six to 12 months, in many cases, nine to 12 months of those expenses. And that way, if you aren't making a single dollar from this passion project of yours, you'll still be able to fund your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a necessity. That is such a necessity. And I'm curious to learn like how much you believe in the the need for tracking, for example, budgeting, expenses, all of that, can you still be financially successful without that? Without a budget? Yeah, without a budget. Hell no. Hell no. Hell no. And people are like, well, what if you make a ton of money? I make a ton of money. And let me tell you, my budget is even more important now than it was when I wasn't making a ton of money. When I was in my very first job, when I was living paycheck to paycheck, a budget is so important. And it doesn't have to be this horrible, restrictive thing. And now a huge portion of my budget is dedicated to saving, investing, 
you know, potential purchases of homes in the future. Yeah. But you want your dollars to each have a job and to each have a purpose. And the only people who don't budget are people who aren't going to be rich for much longer. Mm. Cause I think that like, if you want to be someone who makes plans, who goes on vacation, who buys gifts, who enjoys the finer things in life, who goes out to eat, who, you know, has an apartment that they like or a home that they like, all of those things require a budget. And I don't even just mean that from like a, can you afford a perspective, but like you need to have cash flow management. Like, are you okay if your credit card bill, your rent, your utilities, all of that hits on the same day? You better be, otherwise you're going to start accruing fees that you shouldn't be accruing. Right. So I just think it's really important to have a plan and a budget is a part of that plan. A hundred percent. I love this. Viv, I'm curious, what's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Oh, a question that I wish more people would ask me is probably how finances play into the world of dating. Like, okay. Yeah. Like how do you broach the topic of finances with a partner? Because I will say who you choose to be with is the number one financial decision you will make in your entire life. Mm. It's not, should I pay this debt down through this? Should I refinance it? Should I buy a home? Should I? It's about your partner. Here's yeah. why. Your partner is going to be with you for the longest amount of time. If you stay together, obviously there are, there are stipulations to the statement. Yes, I know the divorce rate is 50%, but your partner, if they are supportive of you and push you to be the best version of yourself can help you make more money. Conscient people who have conscientious partners make more money. There are studies that show that. People who have partners who make them feel small, force them to play small so that they can feel big. You're going to be swimming in the kiddie pool for the rest of your life. You are never, ever, ever going to get to graduate into the ocean. And that's bad because we all deserve partners who thinks, who think like the sun shines out of our ass, even on days where we are the worst. And these are also the people that you'll likely be making some of the largest decisions financially with. So that's buying a home. If you choose to do yeah. so buying a vehicle, if you choose to do so having a wedding, if you choose to do so having kids, if you choose to do so. And these decisions are so, so tied to finances. And if you don't have a person who values a dollar the same way you do, there's going to be a lot of resentment and a lot of arguments that could have been avoided. So mm -hmm. I just think it's really foolish that the vast majority of people actually don't talk to their partner about money until they're already engaged. Wow. A little late for that now, ain't it? Like, absolutely. You should be talking about this before you move in together, frankly, on the first date, because it doesn't have to be a show me your pay stub. It can be what is your dream job if money didn't matter? So you mm. understand their values. If I gave you. $20,000 and told you to plan a vacation, where would we go? That tells you what they value. Are they taking their whole, va their whole family on vacation to Disneyland? Okay. That's one person. Or are they going on a private couples retreat to Thailand? That's a very different person. And like, you want to know who you're with and talking yeah. about money can really help you figure that out. A hundred percent. You know, what's funny. My girlfriend makes me watch Love Island. I, I try to be the support. Oh, I love Love that. Island. Wait, 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 wait. Which, which variation of Love Island? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Um, I'm watching season I... five of Australia right now. It's so good. Yeah. I don't think this was Australia. Maybe it wasn't Love Island, but the reason I bring this up is because, oh no, Love is Blind. That's what it was. Oh, love is okay. blind. I love that one too. I love all, I love all trash reality TV. Love <laughs> 
<laughs> so in Love is Blind, there was a match made and the, the two people were so happy until the woman found out the gentleman's credit score. And knowing his credit score, she was like, I know that we're not aligned. Like, you yeah. know, so it, it is important. It is important without a doubt. And uh, I love that you just brought that up because, I mean, we go down the relationship rabbit hole in so many different ways, but I don't think anyone's ever brought this up. So I just wanted to say thank you. In 300 plus episodes of this show, you were the first person to ever talk yeah! finances uh, with your partner. I love that. But I do want to touch on the book. I know we're running out of time here. Uh, Rich AF. Yeah. Uh, if people pick up this book, when people pick up this book, which yes. by the way, everyone can get this in the show notes of this episode. So make sure you check that out. When people pick this book up, if they read it front to back as many times as they want, but they could only walk away with one thing, what's the Ooh. one thing that you want them to walk away with? You should be entitled because you have value. Mm. And this is so, the very first chapter, I go through a ton of rich people's secrets, right? And one of them, a little sneak peek, is that rich people are super entitled. And sometimes this manifests in the most horrific, horrific way. Like this is some Karen yelling at a poor 18-year-old cashier at McDonald's who is certainly not the reason why her order was messed up. He's just there to do his part-time job and like go home. Um, that's not what I mean when I say entitled. What I mean is... Your business has value, you have value, and you should not be afraid to throw your weight around a little bit. When you get hit with a late fee, call. Call the company and say, hey, as a one-time courtesy, you know, there was a mistake. One-time courtesy, can you waive the fee? Odds okay. are good they'll do it. Entitlement means calling your internet service provider and saying, Hey, I've appreciated the internet over the past two years, but it's just starting to get really expensive. I'm going to switch. I'm going to go somewhere else because you understand the value of your business. They're not sending you to cancellations. They're sending you to customer retention. They are then going to offer you a ton of different things until you agree to stay. And you need to know what you can and cannot negotiate for so you can save money. Being entitled means that when you are mistreated you are spoken down to, when you are disrespected, you have the ability and ideally the infrastructure and agency and money to be able to walk away from a toxic relationship, a toxic job, or any sort of toxic environment that doesn't suit you because you know your worth and you know your value. Yeah. That's a mic drop moment right there. Yeah. That is like, that is a mic drop moment. I love that. Um, I'm going to squeeze two last questions out of you. Cool. The first one being, if I knew what Viv knows, how would my life be different? If you, okay, wait, hold on. Let me think about this question. If you knew what I know, yeah. how would your life be different? And we could generalize that more. We could say, how would the audience's life be different? Yeah. I think people's lives would be so much more optimized mm -hmm. because I, have you ever watched Fresh Off the Boat, that show? I haven't. I'm not really Blue? a show guy. No, I haven't okay, seen okay, that. Okay. Um, so premise is, you know, a immigrant Chinese family and Constance Wu is the mom. And when she goes into the car dealership, she haggles left, right, and center, gets the greatest deal. And then the car dealership guy um, laughs at her because she forgot to ask for the one last thing, which was free car mats. Mm. And it's such a little thing, but it illustrated how in immigrant cultures, we are pro-hagglers, pro-negotiators, many times out of necessity you need to get everything for your money's worth because you don't have a lot of it. Yeah. But I feel like I and many first-gen immigrant kids have taken that mantra and utilized it to really optimize their living. So that includes things like getting cash back when they shop online via an affiliate network or 
using the right credit card to get points and rewards and travel hack. It means getting a high yield savings account instead of a regular one so I can earn more interest on my money. It means, you know, taking advantage of employer match in my 401k so that I get free money from my boss or from my job um, when I'm investing. And I think the whole game is that is you, if you make a lot of these small but meaningful optimizations and make them second nature, your financial situation just overall is going to be so much better. You don't yeah. make one sudden amazing change to your life and you become financially successful. It's a culmination of a bunch of little stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, you, you just brought me back. I, I just want to share this quick. I made a very entitled move and I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I just want to share this. Uh, I had a, I was the best man at a wedding recently and it's the second time I was in a bridal party this year. So I had to rent a tuxedo from mm -hmm. men's warehouse. Mm -hmm. And the second time around I went in there, the same salesperson was assisting me, like trying it on all of that good stuff. And I jokingly said to her, I said, just make sure when you ring me up, my discounts included. And while I said that jokingly, I had a $40 discount. You just brought me back to that story. Like I was just like, oh crap, you do do that. You do because guess what? The cheapest people I've ever met have been the richest people I've ever met. Mm. And they're not afraid to say that. They're not afraid to ask. Yeah. Can you imagine like the worst thing that happened in that scenario is there was no discount and you would still get the tux anyway. And you'd be like, okay, whatever, moving on with my life. Exactly. But you just put an extra $40 back in your pocket. Yeah. What can that $40 exactly. get you? So many things. Two lunches in New York City, that's for sure. That's you right. Know? <laughs> you know, so many things. Viv, I love this. Um, I just want to remind everyone that Rich AF, the link to that is in the show notes. Socials, websites, programs, all of that good stuff can be found in the show notes. I'm going to ask you one last question before we go. If you live to whatever year you want to live to, you accomplish all you want to accomplish every year on the vision board. Like everything yep. is marked off complete, but I can only remember you or anyone that encounters you can only remember you for one piece of advice. I'm not asking you necessarily how you want to be remembered, but I'm saying if your name pops in my mind, this is the piece of advice that is cemented and it's next to your name. What's that advice? Talk to your friends about money. Talk to your friends about money. Yeah. For very, very long, for in our history, we have been told talking about money is taboo. It's mm. tacky. It's rude. It's not nice. You shouldn't do it at dinner parties. But let me explain this to you. Rich people love talking about money. You see guys teeing off on, you know, hole one with their cigars in their mouths and beers in their hands at 8 a.m. And they're talking about their portfolios. Yeah. They're talking about their real estate investments those private cigar rooms at the members only clubs, they're talking about money. I guarantee you they're talking about money, how much they make, how much they're getting in their private equity fund, how much they're getting in, you know, whatever, like they're talking about money. What makes it okay for those types of people to talk about money, but it's not okay for people who look like you and me, who don't come from those types of backgrounds, who don't use summer as a verb to talk about money, nothing. We should be allowed to talk to each other about money. And when regular people talk about money more often, one, it makes it less intimidating, but two, it sets a realistic understanding of what we deserve. So what should we be paying in rent on that, on that kind of apartment? Or what should we be asking for in terms of salary for that kind of job? And the only people that talking about money disenfranchises or disadvantages is corporations. And I'm sorry, I don't feel bad for them at all. I feel like the regular person should talk to their friends about money because we deserve it. We deserve to know what we're worth and what we should demand. Boom. Once again, another mic drop. <laughs> Viv, you are the best. Uh, expressing gratitude. I really, really appreciate this. Congrats on Rich AF. Again, everyone, it's in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You have just kicked off your 2024 with episode number 302 featuring Vivian Tu right here on the Decoding Success Podcast. Make sure you check out Vivian's new book and grab your copy of Rich AF in the show notes of this episode. You're also going to be able to find her website, socials, 
tour dates around America and all of that good stuff there as well. To water the idea planted earlier about sharing this episode, you made it here to the end. You tapped in with us for an hour out of your day, and you started your 22 off strong by educating yourself and even entertaining yourself. So on that note, putting it on your mind and heart yet again to share this episode with someone in your life to help them level up in their finances, in their life this year. If you share it on social media, make sure that you tag Vivian and myself so that we can show you love and say thank you. But be ready. Next week, we are back to releasing two episodes per week. You're going to get a solo episode from myself as well as another game-changing interview just like this one. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.